We have been in a study for the past several weeks now on the apostles, and we are calling this Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Mission. And we are learning about how to serve Jesus Christ, how to be Jesus Christ's presence in our world by looking at the example of these apostles and seeing how they operated and then patterning ourselves after them, or in some cases, patterning ourselves not after them, as they were also a good negative example for us at times as well. We're looking at the, uh, the Apostle John this morning. Now, I'm sure you are aware there are 27 books that make up your New Testament. Uh, of those 27 books, uh, there are eight different authors that penned each of those books, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. I'm also sure you're aware that Paul uh, wrote either 13 or 14 of those, depending on what you do with the book of Hebrews. And so Paul wrote half of the New Testament as far as the number of books. Now, if we are considering who wrote the most, wrote the most books of, in the New Testament after Paul, it would be the disciple that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle John. Uh, John wrote five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. Now, why is that important as we start this morning? Well, it's important because we can learn a great deal about John, not just from what others have said about him, but what he wrote about himself and what he wrote himself. Uh, much of our insight about John comes from the words that he penned himself in the New Testament. Now, as you are aware, uh, Peter, along with Peter and James, uh, John was also in the Lord's inner circle. But he was not a dominant member of that group and is often overshadowed by Peter and his older brother James. Even in the first part of Acts, where the focus is on the work that Peter and John are doing, Peter is certainly in the forefront, and John is much more in the background. Uh, John outlived all the other disciples, and as a result, he took a leadership role in the church as it continued to, uh, continued to grow and develop. He also had a great influence on the church, an influence that lasted uh, nearly to the end of the first century. Now, in terms of personality, if you remember what we talked about with James last week, uh, John is very similar to James. Uh, they were together much of the time uh, while ministry was occurring, and it seems like whatever James was doing, good or bad, uh, John was right there with him. By the way, that just shows, goes to show you the negative effects that an older brother can have on an innocent younger brother. Me being an innocent younger brother, by the way. So, <laughs> Well, okay. And yet with all the mistakes he made and all the missteps he took, John wrote more about love in the New Testament than any other writer. His focus was on how a Christian should, have Jesus, how the Christian should love Jesus Christ and how Christians should love each other. In fact, John made it clear to us that our love for each other is what should distinguish us among all others around us. It should be the distinguishing characteristic in our world of what a Christian is. However, just like all the other disciples, that quality came only because John spent significant time around Jesus Christ. He did not have this quality of love in himself. He learned it as he spent time with the Savior. And I say that because if you consider John in his early years, he was not one who was filled with love for others. Uh, if you've ever seen paintings, you know, of the Last Supper, paintings of John and so forth, uh, you see John often portrayed as this very effeminate, kind of weak, meek, meek and mild sort of person. Uh, John was a commercial fisherman. <laughs> uh, John was not meek and mild. John was rugged. John was uh, hard-edged. That's the kind of man he was. He was nicknamed by Jesus Christ as a son of thunder, and that was not necessarily a term of endearment. Uh, John was intolerant. John was ambitious. John was zealous. John was explosive, just like his older brother was. Again, very similar personalities. And we're going to see as we go through this study this morning, John could react in ways that were brash and bold and impulsive and intolerant. Again, much like his older brother James. And it was easy to see the resemblance between the two as they operated together. What's encouraging about this this morning, and what we're going to see as we conclude this, uh, John aged well, and as he got older, many of those traits that he had peeled away, and things that had been his greatest weakness became his greatest strengths. One of the no most notable characteristics of the Apostle John was his love and passion for the truth. 
And although John developed a deep quality of love, that love did not reduce his desire to pursue and live out the truth that God showed him. In fact, uh, that love balanced out his pursuit of truth. We're going to look at that just a, a little bit more in just a few minutes. But if you read much of John's writings, you're going to find he had a love for the truth. It's very obvious. And if you read through John's writings, what you're also going to find, John was a very black and white kind of guy. He didn't deal in relative truth. John dealt in absolute truth. No gray areas in John's teaching. It was either true or it was not. Uh, we won't go through it all this morning, but if you look in the Gospel of John, you'll see him contrast light and darkness, life against death, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, the children of God and the children of Satan, the judgment of the righteous against the judgment of the wicked, receiving Jesus Christ against rejecting Jesus Christ, obedience against disobedience, love against hatred, very black and white, one category or the other with no middle ground. <laughs> and that holds true in his epistles as well. In 1 John, he tells us you're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. He says you ha if, you have, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar. He says that if you love, you're born of God. If you don't love, you're not born of God. It could not be more dogmatic. In his second epistle, he calls upon us to separate from everything that is false. I want to read you a few verses from uh, 2 John, beginning in verse 9. Listen to what he says. He says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. It can't get more clear. Listen to verse 11 of his third epistle. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. He that doeth evil hath not seen God. As black and white as you can get. Couldn't be much clearer as to where John stands. Now, I want to be clear about this because there's a doctrinal issue here we want to take note of. John was aware of people's sin. John was aware we have a sin nature. But he never offered that sin nature to his readers as an excuse. Uh, he always made it clear we should live righteous regardless of that sin nature or not. Righteousness is what should characterize a believer's life. And he doesn't give any excuse for anything else. Now we compare that to what, with what the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, in Romans 7, for example, he clearly defines those two natures that are seeking to operate in a believer's life both at the same time. In Romans chapter 6, Paul discusses sin in a believer's life as a result of what a believer yields to. So Paul does not condone a pattern of sin in our lives, but as, at the same time, he makes it clear that our war with sin and our old sin natures is going to be a constant thing that we deal with until God calls us home. And so Paul exhorts each one of us to put off the old man and put on the new man. Now, if you read John, and I have fallen into this from time to time, if you read John and you're not careful, you'll almost begin to question your salvation. If you find any lingering sin in your life at all, you're going to ask yourself, am I really saved? Because that's sort of the message John puts out. John is emphatic about not allowing any sin to have any place in our lives. Now, we understand all of Scripture is under the inspiration of God's Spirit, and so he permitted both John and Paul to write what they wrote. And so we find this. God allowed John to give the principle. He described the way things should be. Paul gave us how to respond, not to how things should be, but to how things are. So we have this sin nature, and John makes that very, very clear. Paul then gives us practical ways to address that sin nature so it doesn't control us. But the real point to be made here right now is that these writings of John reflect his personality. He was a black and white kind of guy. He possessed that kind of a personality. He valued truth and in no way whatsoever wanted to uh, disregard or cloud the truth that was there. He did not want any exceptions to the truth. Jesus Christ spoke exactly the same way, by the way. 
And although John wrote in many ways were kind and pastoral, he never clouded the truth in what he was writing. Now, from all this, I want to stop and make a couple of practical points. I don't want us to miss this this morning. Our role as believers in Jesus Christ is to reflect him to our world. That's why God has left us here. And our study of the disciples, as I mentioned a minute ago, is a way for our flesh to do that. And if that is what we're called to do, then with John as our example, here is the first practical truth we need to get from this. We are called as believers to be presenters and proponents of the truth. That is our calling on this earth. I don't want to belabor this. We've talked about this many, many times. But clearly, our society no longer has any interest whatsoever in absolute truth. And most unbelievers that you meet, and sadly many believers that you meet, also have no interest in hearing absolute truth. You know why that is? Because real truth is offensive. Real truth is offensive. Real truth tells you things you don't want to hear and puts requirements on us that we don't want to follow. Real truth typically gets in the way of our personal agenda. It certainly gets in the way of almost all political agendas. I want to give you the easiest example I know of that demonstrates to us this problem that society has with real truth. I want you to go, if you would, hold your hand there, Mark. We'll get there eventually. Uh, But go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is the easiest example I can find for you of how the world simply hates truth and does anything they can to get around it. Look at Genesis chapter 1. And look at verse 27. Now, notice what the verse says clearly. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and look at verse 2. Genesis 5, 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them. God makes a very simple statement uh, twice as though he knew that someday man would become so depraved they would begin to question it. In 22 words in the first verse and in 19 words in the second verse, God puts his entire gender controversy to rest. (laughs) I don't care what the authorities pull out. I don't care what the studies say. I don't care what the polling data says. Real truth says there are two genders, male and female, and God said it that way from the very beginning. That's truth. That's just truth. And when God sets something, nothing that mankind says or does will ever change that. It is absolute truth because God is absolute. Now, if we're going to reflect Jesus Christ, here's what we've got to do. Number one, we learn real truth from God's word. We find out what the truth is. Jesus Christ said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. No qualification to it. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Word of God, all about the Word of God, here's what David says in verse 30. He says, I've chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Verse 151, he says, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. You want to find truth? It's found in the book that you have in your lap this morning. That's truth. There is no truth outside of the Word of God. If it agrees with the Word of God, it is truth. If it disagrees with the Word of God, it is not truth. It's a lie. Bottom line. So if we're going to reflect Jesus Christ, we need to reflect absolute truth. And so what I need to do, I need to get into that book and make that book my passion and learn absolute truth. I won't find truth anywhere else but in the pages of that book. Why should I read and study and memorize the word of God? Because that book is the only source of truth on earth and beyond earth as well. Only contains God's truth. So that's first. 
Number two, we stand for the truth that is found in the Word of God. We learn God's truth, and we stand for God's truth, no matter what society says, no matter what any individual says, no matter what any study says about it. I stand unashamedly and unwaveringly for the truth that is found in the Word of God. That's my calling. That's your calling as well. And as they fire at me in all directions, I take this book up as my shield and allow all of mankind's ideas and opinions and desires to be deflected by the absolute truth of the word of God. When they fire at you, folks, hold up the book and let the book take care of it. But I'm going to tell you, we can no longer be shy and retiring when it comes to proclaiming real truth. And back years ago, maybe they had a better concept of it. Folks, they don't know anything about truth now. They are creating their own truth and labeling as your truth and my truth as though truth is all relative. And it's not. Here's a book of absolute truth. Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 14. And judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. Now, I don't know about you. I think we're living in those days right now. Truth has failed. Truth has fallen. There is no more truth out there except what's found here in this book. And so if we're going to be Jesus Christ to our world, if we don't proclaim truth, uh, that truth will fall away and it will cease to exist in a practical sense. So we stand for real truth. Here's the second practical point, using John as our example of proclaiming truth. Be careful not to allow our defense and proclamation of the truth to become offensive, not because of the truth, but because of our presentation of the truth. We must be very careful never to make ourselves the focus of the response. Always make the truth of the word of God the focus of the response. You see, here's one of the liabilities of someone who has a personality like John's. They can be prone to extremes. The proclamation of the truth can appear to be hateful and selfish, and the truth can be presented with no love attached to it. Ephesians chapter 4, 4, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 Paul said that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. There it is. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Paul says two things here. Don't be pulled in by the lies and the manipulations of the culture. But at the same time, speak God's truth in love to those folks who have been deceived. My presentation of the truth is not set out there so that I can win an argument. That's not why I do it. I don't do it to show how much smarter I am than the person is that I'm talking to. My goal in proclaiming the truth is to get our audience to hear, to re, uh, to hear real truth, to be impacted by real truth, and be drawn to a Savior who is real truth. <laughs> That's why I send out the truth. That's why I do it. Any approach that we take that that does not accomplish that uh, will simply not be the work that God wants us to do. I know it's very easy, especially in the day and age in which we live. uh, You are the targets as believers in Jesus Christ specifically. You're the targets of everything they're doing. And it's not difficult to take that personally as though they're focusing this specifically at you. You may be the recipient of the attack, but the reality is they are not rejecting my truth. They are rejecting God's truth. And they do that because they've got a sin nature that is out of control and can only be brought under control by the saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my goal must be to present God's truth to them, bathed in his love for them. And if it becomes if it becomes anything else, 
It's a prideful exercise. It'll result in me promoting myself and not the love that God has for the laws. Now, again, I'm not against speaking out on truth. I'm really not. But I've known believers, and especially some, some prominent believers, who have taken this thing and beat people over the head with that truth. They've become so offensive that they turn people away. And it's all truth, but the presentation is awful. And as a result of that, people are shoved away from the truth. I've got to be very careful as a believer not to be hateful in my presentation of the truth. I know the world frustrates you. I know they drive you crazy sometimes. I know they disgust you. You know what God did? God loved them so much, he sent his son to die for them. You've got to love them. You've got to love them. <laughs> Regardless of what they do, you've got to love them. Present the truth. Do it. Present the truth. <laughs> but do it in love. Otherwise, you drive them away and you become the focus. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, hopefully you saw last week that there's nothing wrong with having zeal. Nothing wrong with having enthusiasm. That's a good thing. James had that. However, what we also saw last week, that zeal out of balance becomes a tool of the flesh. And also, truth out of balance, in the same way, can become a tool of the flesh. A truth that is not tempered by love is the result of a spirit that is not controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so again, we are called to be Jesus Christ to our world, and that involves two factors that must be part of our approach. Number one, like Jesus did, we present God's absolute truth with no apologies and no compromise. But at the same time, number two, like Jesus did, we present that truth in the love of God as we desire not to win an argument, but to win souls to the Savior. That's how we do it. So in John's early life, what you see, you see a man out of balance. You see a man who stood for truth and offended those who he presented it to in the process. And so just like Peter and James and Andrew, John spent significant time with the Savior. And three years later, after spending that time with the Lord... Uh, this one who is immature and imbalanced gained a spiritual equilibrium that helped him to become an elder statesman in the early church. What I'd like to do for the rest of our time this morning is consider the balance that John attained in his life and in his ministry as he spent time with the Lord. And the first balance he found is one that we have already talked about somewhat this morning. We're going to talk about it a little bit further. Uh, John developed a balance between truth and love. A balance between truth and love. Now, here again, here's what we find about John from the very, very beginning. John valued the truth. He was attracted to John the Baptist because John the Baptist spoke truth. And when John the Baptist proclaimed the truth about Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God, John became a disciple at that point. And so truth was extremely important to him. But again, in his early years, that truth that he possessed, he had a zeal for that that lacked compassion that we discussed a few moments ago. And so I'd like you to go now to Mark chapter 9 where we started earlier today. Go to Mark chapter 9. This is one of the few places we have in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where John speaks. And I'd like to look for a look at that in Mark chapter 9 this morning again. We find John alone. He, the other disciples are, are not around him. And he comes across somebody who is ministering for Jesus Christ, for the cause of Christ. And John observes what's going on as this fellow does what he's doing. And he brings his concern to the Lord. Look at verse 38 again. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. Us four and no more. <laughs> he's not part of our group. He's not a member of our organization. He should not be doing the work that he's doing. That was John's attitude. It is difficult to find a more unloving and more uncaring attitude than what John displays here. It'd be helpful for us to see what, what happened that brought him to that point. 
in the beginning of the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 9, you have the account where Jesus Christ is transfigured. Jesus took his three most trusted disciples, Peter, James, and John, and allowed them to have a picture of what it was going to be like when Jesus Christ came back in all of his power and all of his glory and defeated his enemies and set up his kingdom. No one, not even Moses, Moses himself, had ever seen anything like that. And beyond that, Moses and Elijah appeared that day with Jesus Christ on that mount. Look at verse 7, if you would, Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Not only did Moses and Elijah appear, but verse 7 says, There was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Those three disciples stood on that mountain and witnessed something that had never, ever happened in the course of human history before. God spoke out of a cloud to them. And notice the instruction Jesus Christ gives them in verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen to the Son of Man were risen from the dead. <laughs> now, just put yourself in their place. Uh, just human nature being what it is. You have just seen Moses and Elijah. You have just heard God speak from a cloud and heard words spoken. And Jesus Christ says, don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. That had to be the most difficult thing for those apostles to ever do. Keep yourself quiet about what you've just seen. Now, when they saw that stuff, I'm sure what they thought was, we've got to be chosen special people. I mean, God allowed us to see Moses and Elijah. God allowed us to see, hear God speak from heaven. Likely, we are the recipients of all that God has for us. We must be the chosen people. We must be above all the others. They had to consider themselves to be the greatest of all the disciples to experience something like that. And so they began talking about that among themselves, about who should be the greatest and so forth, because they thought they all should be the greatest. Every one of them thought they should be the greatest one. And so Jesus Christ asked them, what are you talking about? Look at verse 35. After they tell him what they were talking about, he says to them in verse 35, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Talk about taking a pin and popping that balloon. <laughs> These fellows were inflated. They saw themselves as the greatest of all the apostles. And Jesus Christ says to them, if you want to be the greatest, be a servant. Be a servant. We've heard this many, many times now, haven't we? Uh, Jesus Christ has given that lesson again. If you want to be the greatest, it starts by becoming least. And what Jesus was saying to them was this. If you want to serve, if you want to serve, if you, rather, if you want to be part of me, if you want to be great in my, in my eyes, serve, serve. That is the most loving thing that you could do. Love those who God has called you to minister to. Folks, nothing has changed in over 2,000 years regarding that. Amen. Jesus Christ spoke those words. They apply today just like they did back then. And those words must have gotten to John since love was a primary concern for him. But it's then that he asked this question about this one who's doing the work but was not part of their group. So in spite of all this that Jesus Christ has talked about as far as love and position and so forth, John still drew lines. It was still us versus them. It was still about having the status of a disciple and not sharing that privilege with anybody who didn't see it in John's eyes uh, to qualify like he did. John was a son of thunder. John was not passive in his approach. He told a man doing God's work to stop doing the work of God. The only reason being that he's not part of our group. And I want you to turn to uh, verse 39 now, if you would, John, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 39. Look at the Lord's answer to him. He says, he followed not us. We forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Jesus Christ said, don't forbid him. Don't do that. Stop doing that. This is a strong rebuke on the part of the Lord. 
And I believe that was a turning point for John. I think as we look at John's writings, we see that he still spoke truth, but there was a softer presentation to it. He now attached love to that presentation of the truth. Folks, we need to speak truth in love. All truth with no love will turn people away. They'll miss the point of the truth because we offend them in the presentation. At the same time, however, all love and no truth will dilute the message of the truth. It's got to be a balance. A message focused only on God is love. misses the truth that God hates sin and God judges sin. You've got churches this morning that, that that's the message they're preaching. The only thing you'll hear from that pastor in one way or another is that God is love. God loves everybody except everybody because God is love. And that's true. But there's got to be a balance. There's got to be a balance. God also hates sin. God also judges sin. Listen to me. A presentation promoting the tolerance of sin is not a loving message. Why do I say that? It is not loving to tell people that God overlooks sin because that message will result in the condemnation of God when they meet him at the judgment. There are scores of people going out into eternity who have had a pastor or a preacher say to them, God loves you and don't worry about it. And they get before him and God says, what about this sin problem you had? Never heard about that. Was never told about that. You see, it's a clear indication of spiritual maturity for a person to be able to present the truth in a way where people are not offended by them, but also they don't compromise the message in the process. That is the goal we strive for. Present the truth, but don't offend by your presentation. Present the truth, but present that truth in love. Don't minimize the message. Don't minimize the truth, but also don't do it in a way that is offensive to other people. I want you to turn to the book of Second John. Second John. This is John's writing specifically. Look at what he says here in this book. And I'm thankful we have these. This gives us a good insight into the personality of John and the changes John made as he spent time with Jesus Christ. Second John chapter 1. He says, the elder, that's speaking of himself, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Drop down to verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I have found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Lord, from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. You see it? He's getting the idea there is truth involved here. He knows there's truth. He reinforces that truth. But he reinforces here also there is no greater truth than love. He says love satisfies and fulfills God's law, just as he was taught by Jesus Christ so many years ago. But we saw in the last part of this letter, we read it just a few minutes ago, uh, he also makes it clear, never allow your love to compromise the truth. So hold on to that love, but don't let it compromise the truth. Truth has requirements that cannot be nullified simply because we're seeking to love those we minister to. And the bottom line to all this again is never allow truth to be abandoned in the name of love. And never allow love to be set aside in the name of truth. It's a balance. Catch them both. And that is what identified John as he grew older. That is what identifies a mature believer from an immature believer. I'll tell you, any believer that you see who's beating people over the head with the truth is not a mature believer. They've not learned the whole story. They've learned the truth. <laughs> they haven't learned the love part yet. And that's the whole package. That's the spiritual maturity that a believer grows into as they spend time with Jesus Christ. There's another balance John found. He found the balance between ambition and humility. 
ambition, and humility. John had ambitious plans for himself. Nothing wrong with that. The issue here is the motivation behind his ambition. You see, John was doing everything that he did for his own sake. He was doing all these things to make a name for himself and because he liked the power that came with being associated with Jesus Christ. Ambition without humility becomes egotism and self becomes most important in that case. We saw a few minutes just a second ago, a John confronted the man who was doing a work of God but wasn't part of their group. And Jesus Christ rebuked him for that. Go back now to the book of Mark, if you would. Put a marker there in the Johns. We'll get there in a minute again. But go back to the book of Mark and look at chapter 10 this time. Jesus Christ rebuked him in John chapter 9 because of that uh, stance he took against that fellow. And then look what he says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 31. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Now, I can't prove this, but I've got to think as Jesus Christ said that he cast a look toward John. (laughs) I think he was saying, you know, John, listen to me. I know you want to be first. I know you want to be the guy. If that's the case, you need to be last. Consider yourself last. Jesus Christ says making a name for yourself does not meet at all the goal of serving Jesus Christ, does not meet at all the goal that Jesus Christ is trying to get them to see. Position is not the issue. Doing God's work, God's way, whether there's any recognition for it or not, that's the issue. That's the issue. And yet if you drop down to verse 35, look at it. After Jesus Christ gives them all this talk about servanthood, about being last and so forth, verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. First shall be last, last shall be first. You came not to to, to in charge, but to serve. Jesus Christ gives them all those messages. And what do they say? We want to be seated by you in the glory. We want to be seated right next to you. Now, let me say this. Nothing wrong with that. Not a wrong desire. I'd like to be seated there. <laughs> so nothing wrong with that desire. Uh, the issue is not that. The issue is what we talked about last week. They thought the position should be theirs simply because they were his disciples. They thought there was a certain uh, notoriety that came with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. They have, should have certain privileges because they were disciples of Jesus Christ. Those fellows gave no thought whatsoever as to whether or not they were worthy of that honor. Never gave a thought to it. They felt they had the right to claim to that simply because of their connection to the Savior. Drop down to verse 42. Jesus Christ showing infinite patience, more than I ever could. Look at what he says to him in verse 42. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister. Whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." If you want to be great, you've got to be humble. That's the message. Over and over and over. If you want to be great, you've got to be humble. Now, unless a person simply isn't listening, there is no possible way to miss the point that in God's economy, uh, humility comes through service. 
That is what he wants you to do. That's what he calls you to do. Greatness in God's economy comes through humility and service. Well, apparently the disciples aren't listening because that night of the Passover, not one of them picked up the basin or the towel to wash the feet of the other disciples. Jesus Christ had to do it because none of the other ones did. However, back to John's writings, there are indications that finally John began to pick up on this thing. If you read the, uh, through the uh, Gospel of John, you're going to find something. John never once in that entire gospel mentions his own name. Doesn't talk about himself once. In fact, he always refers to himself in the third person. And when he does refer to himself, he always refers to himself in relationship to Jesus Christ. The most common way that John referred to himself was as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't think that was a claim to any kind of glory or or pride. I think he was saying, you know what? God loved me. I'm the one that Jesus loved. Look at me. I'm the one that Jesus loved. Uh, John was, became aware of who he was and what he was, and he realized all that was only true because of Jesus Christ. By the way, believer, have you learned that lesson? Have you learned that lesson? Have you learned that you are what you are, and you have what you have, and you're going where you're going only because God loved you? That's the only reason for it? Uh, we have nothing in ourselves. We are nothing in ourselves. We have no claim to anything outside of Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can think more of ourselves is to think less of the great love that God has shown to us through his son. I've got something to suggest to you, and I think this is a good suggestion for all of us. When pride begins to creep in, because it will, when pride begins to creep in, Pull that pride under control by considering what you would have been and where you would be now had God not loved you. (laughs) That'll put it in perspective. Just think about knowing yourself and knowing your inclinations and knowing your desires. Just think about where you'd be and what you'd be had God not sent his son for you. That'll stop pride. (laughs) That'll stop pride in his tracks. I am nothing Outside of Jesus Christ, I have no claim to anything outside of Jesus Christ. We see John's humility in how he addresses those in his letters. I'll go back to, the, to John's again and look at Third John uh, 2. I'm sorry, First John chapter 3 and verse 2. Go to First John chapter 3 and verse 2. Remember this fellow who wanted to be above everybody else? Remember this fellow who felt like he had a special position above all others? First John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now are we, we, the sons of God. Not setting himself up, up, up above all the others, not saying I'm a special son of God. He says, now are we the sons of God, not claiming position above them anymore. Folks, your humility is going to show in how you treat other people. Your humility is going to show in your willingness to stand alongside brothers and sisters in Christ instead of seeking a position above them. Your humility is going to show in your willingness to accept that person who is nothing like you, but who trusted Jesus Christ just like you did. And may have a different lifestyle and a different look and a different interest than you do, but you pull them alongside because they're a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. That shows humility. That shows humility. And if you're not able to do that, you've got a pride problem going on. At one point, John wanted to be the greatest. As he spent time with Jesus Christ and watched how Jesus Christ operated, he came to realize the best role to take on, the role that pleases God the most, is the role of a servant. A servant. And I'll tell you what the church needs today, folks. It needs more servants. It needs more servants. 
It needs more people who just want to roll up their sleeves and do whatever it is God wants them to do. Who will take whatever time it needs to take and nobody has to know about it. They just do it because that's what God's called them to do. The church of Jesus Christ today needs servants. And that means we need a balance between ambition and want to do God's work and humility, realizing that we are only who we are because of love of Jesus Christ. And what I've been called to do and what I've been called to do from, by God himself is to serve others. And that is the greatest calling on earth. And until we learn that, we're not going to be of any use to Jesus Christ whatsoever. One other balance that John found. I wish I didn't have to give you this, but I do. He found the balance between suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. John wanted glory. We see that over and over in his writings and in the accounts that we're given here. He wanted to be the greatest among the apostles. He had an aversion to suffering. How do I know that? Because when Jesus Christ was being hauled off, John took off. <laughs> he left. Now, he came back, thank God. But at that moment, he didn't want any part of it. He saw what they were doing to Jesus Christ, and he took off the other direction. Now, again, being with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, that could have given John the impression that he should have been chosen among the apostles. John saw the glory of God. He saw the best that human eyes ever could, what God's glory looked like. And I'm sure that gave John this desire to uh, see that, be in that glory eternally. So that's the, the, not a problem wanting, wanting to be in the glory of God. Not a problem. And nobody but a crazy person enjoys suffering. So John's basic attitude was okay, understandable. But there's a principle that John was aware, unaware of, either at that moment or as we are, many are today as well. Simply choose to ignore it. This is it, folks. Suffering. I'm going to stand over here seeing here. Suffering is the price of glory. Suffering is the price of glory. And there's no way to change that. You want absolute truth? That's absolute truth. Suffering is the price of glory. That's what it costs. That's what it costs. I cannot achieve God's glory without suffering. Paul said this, Philippians 3.10, you know the verse well, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. (laughs) Paul says, I want to know him. I want to achieve what God wants me to achieve. How do I do that? I achieve that by going through suffering. I go through that by being made conformable unto the death of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.12 If we suffer... We shall also reign with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Romans eight seventeen. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Heir of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. If we suffer. God does not promise us his glory. I'm sorry, God does promise us his glory. We shall reign in that glory when he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. But there is a prerequisite to that, and the prerequisite is I must be willing to suffer whatever I must suffer here as I serve him so I can attain the glory that I can gain when I meet him. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. There is no other way around it. No other way around it. There is no shortcut to reigning with Jesus Christ and partaking of his glory except to suffer Here for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ heard that they wanted to sit with him in his kingdom. 
So he asked him a question, you remember? He says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? What's he asking them based on their request? Are you willing to suffer like I'm going to suffer to gain that glory? That's what he's asking. Are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer to gain that glory? Do you realize what you're agreeing to? When you say yes to that question, realize what you're agreeing to. Now, I'm going to tell you, they all fulfilled the promise. Every one of those fellows, except for John, suffered a martyr's death for their faith. And although John was not martyred, uh, John did suffer like the others suffered. He suffered as he watched his Savior die on that cross. He watched as his own brother and each of his disciple comrades be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Under persecution, John himself was banished to a prison community on the Isle of Patmos. He was in a cave there on that island, and that's where he penned the book of Revelation. And something very interesting about the book of Revelation, something we don't see in that book. Not once do we find John mentioning his sufferings. He was suffering from the time he started that book until the time he ended it. (laughs) And never once you hear about that. He only alludes to it one time in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Here's what he says. Catch it. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Tribulation and patience. Do you hear it? Tribulation and patience. He says, I am going through tribulation, but I know there's an end to this. I know there's a final end to it. I'll go through this tribulation because I am patiently waiting for the glory that will come when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and sets things right and rewards those who served him in spite of the difficulties. And once John got that view, he changed from that one who wanted to set the Samaritans on fire to one who preached love to others through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you were expecting this morning when you came here. But I'm going to tell you, that's real Christianity right there. I don't know what else you hear on the radio, TV, or whatever, but that's what God's Word says. Listen to me. It is not glory and roses while you're here on this earth. And if you've got that, you're doing something wrong. (laughs) Jesus Christ said, the Apostle John says, if you're going to be on this earth and truly serve Him, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And not because of your own mistakes or because of some stupid thing that we do. You're going to suffer for doing the right thing for Jesus Christ. Amen. This is where the rubber hits the road, folks. You, see, I, you didn't know what you were getting into when you trusted Jesus Christ. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> it's too late now. You're in it. You're in it. God says, you want the glory? And by the way, you say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Glory, no glory. You know, oh, yeah, whatever. Uh, when Moses was meeting with God on the mount. Moses, I want to see you. I just want to see you. And God said, you can't see me. Because you see, if, if you see me, you'll die. So Moses said, well, let me see something. So God said, okay, I'm going to put you over here in a, in a cleft of the rock, and I'm going to walk by, and I'm going to put my hand out so you can't see me. I'm just going to walk by so you can see my glory. And as God walked by Moses, that light was so bright, Moses couldn't look. That was the glory of God walking by him. In that moment, it was so bright and so glorious, Moses couldn't even behold it. You can live in that for a thousand years. That's what he's promising you. A thousand years of glory just like that. So here's the deal. However old you are, however old you are when God finally takes you home, you've got that many years to serve. Let's say it's 50 years, okay? You've got 50 more years to serve Jesus Christ. So you can take 50 years of serving Jesus Christ and suffer by doing what he's called you to do during that time. 
And for those 50 years, you get a thousand years of living in his glory. <laughs> you just suffer for 50 years. Now, to me, that's a decent trade-off. You couldn't get that kind of a deal from anybody in Vegas. It's just a matter of saying, you know what, Lord? I got the picture. I see it. I'm going to strip all this other stuff away from my eyes. I'm going to see it like you see it. And that's how to see it. John learned balance. Folks, here's what you're called to do. You're called to preach the truth. You're called to stand for the truth. You're called to suffer for the truth when it is rejected and scorned when you speak it. And you are called to love in spite of whatever reaction you may receive from it. What your world needs is truth and love. That's what they need. And you are the one in your world to make that happen. Whatever the price. Are you willing to do it? Heads bowed, eyes closed.